Hello and welcome to High Key Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomauer, and today we are diverting somewhat from the best laid plans of mice and men and covering the Battle of Issus. As I was sitting down thinking about how to handle this portion of the season, as I was, you know, writing up my little script, drafting up program for what was going on this week, I first decided that it made sense to break out each of Alexander's biggest battles, Isis, Gaudamela, and the Hydaspes, into their own little episodes. That way we could get some more context about the lead-up and aftermath of each. And also I wouldn't feel rushed, I would feel like it would take as much time as each individual battle needed. And at that point I was like, you know, might as well proceed more or less chronologically. I know last week I didn't really do that, so it's a little complicated, but here's what's going on. This week, we're getting the Battle of Issus. Next week, we will be covering Alexander's famous sieges of Tyre and Gaza. And then after that, we'll do a Dogamella episode. Then a Battle of the Hydaspes, Alexander, and India episode. And then we'll wrap up this little season within a season with the episode analyzing the intangible aspects of Alexander's battle prowess and generalship. I'll make an assessment of his skills and obviously... Pretty fond of the guy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this season. So, spoiler alert, I guess. After that, we're looking at sort of shockingly few episodes. We have an episode dedicated to Alexander's relationship with the gods and his own myth, an episode on his potential descent into madness, an episode on his attempts to administering his vast new kingdom, and the episode I recorded with the Alexander Standard podcast, and then a final episode analyzing Alexander's overall legacy. Now would probably be as good a time as I need to do the finger math, figure out how many episodes we have left, how many that brings us to total. But right here, right now, as I'm typing out the script for this episode, don't feel like doing it. Time will tell if I feel like doing it in the moment. The answer is no. We'll figure it out when we get there, how many episodes the season's going to be. You know, who lights, a, who lights a spoiler? Nobody. Anyway, today's episode will begin with a brief introduction into our guide Darius III, Alexander's foil, his nemesis the great king of the Persian Empire, and we'll find out, was he nice with it? Was he not nice with it? Essentially, insofar that this exceedingly brief introduction to him will allow us, we're going to figure out what his deal was. Then we'll cover the run-up to the Battle of Issus, the battle itself, compositions, formation, estimates of the armies involved, all that good stuff, and then conclude with a little aftermath, what did this battle actually mean for the bigger picture, was Alexander's strategy, his tactics, were they good in this instance? What happened next? But before we get into that, do me a favor, check out the social media for this here podcast. Drop a follow on Instagram at High Obsessed Podcast in order to stay up to date on all the happenings, all the memes, all the book reviews, all the beautiful symphony of music that I'm cranking out on that Instagram account. Also, be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews, wherever you find yourself listening to this little ditty right now be greatly appreciated by me and just legitimately pretty chill of you to do so so please please just do it with that taken care of that's out of the way let us dive into the belly of the beast here let's get started with today's episode as you may recall way back when i started this season i had some episodes giving overviews of greek history persian history the greco persian wars all that good fun juicy stuff And if you recall that, you might also totally recall that the Persian Empire, when it was invaded by Alexander and the Macedonians and their allies, 
We're not necessarily talking about an empire at the peak of powers here. Darius III succeeded Artaxerxes III and Arces, aka Artaxerxes IV, Artaxerxes IV, Persian kings who were poisoned by the Chiliart second command, and Eunuch Bedois. Artaxerxes III is probably most relevant for restoring Egypt to the Persian Empire. It had previously been independent since 404 BCE, and he recontrated it in probably 340-339 BCE. I did also see it as 343 BCE in one of my sources, so that general timeline there is what we're thinking of. He also restored some of the other dicey, more rebellious western fringes of the Persian Empire to be more securely in Persian hands. He also resolved some of the issues that his predecessors had been dealing with. Dealing with, He prevented satraps from hiring their own mercenaries and tugged back on a lot of rebellions, basically. He was known to be fairly ruthless and energetic ruler. He was the first in a succession of not-so-great rulers that had preceded him. And upon taking the throne, he killed a lot of potential rivals in securing his place, which further damaged the Achaemenid line. In 338 BCE, after like a 30-year reign, he was poisoned by that Chiliarch, the royal advisor, the eunuch Bedoas, who also killed his eldest sons and put the youngest and presumably easiest to control on the throne. However, our guy, the young Arces, who became Artaxerxes IV, relatively unknown, but what we do know, he was not fucking with Bedoas. He tried to poison the eunuch, rebelled against his control, Unfortunately, Bedoas sniffed out the plot, forced the king to drink his own poison, and the royal family was also killed. So Bedoas, he's pretty resourceful. He's like, who do we got on deck? Nobody really. I killed them all. Here's who we do got. This cousin, potentially, of Artaxerxes, who will take the name Darius III once he takes the throne. Now, some of the story may be embellished. But we do know it's clear that the line of Achaemenids was heavily told in this era, and it was told due to murder. Darius III was likely a minor figure of Achaemenid heritage, not viewed as enough of a threat as close enough to the line to be worth murdering when Artaxerxes III took the throne and was securing his place. But that said, he had some things going for him. Tall man, handsome man, had previously served as a satrap, had one favor from Artaxerxes III for individual bravery in battle. He had defeated an enemy, cha- an enemy champion in single combat. Pretty impressive, pretty cool. He was also likely a very favored henchman, an ally, a vassal of Artaxerxes III, perhaps overseeing the famed Persian postal system. So basically, our dude is famed for individual battle prowess. He's handsome, he, you know, he touched the figure of a king, has some kingly attributes to him. And he has some pretty significant administrative experience. Sort of looks like maybe someone, a first of the Magi, could cook up to become Tain, perhaps. Who knows? Abercrombie, you're on watch for stealing this story, my dude. Simply put, by all appearances, Darius III had all the makings to be a very competent king. And one surefire example of this is that he managed to have Bedoas killed after taking the throne. So... You know, no more puppet ruling, got the poisoner taken care of, he's ruling on his own. Sometimes Darius III is, sometimes, really often, he is portrayed as this sort of incapable, flaccid ruler, but we simply don't know a ton about him. He mostly comes to us in sources focusing on Alexander and casting Darius III as his rival. 
contrasting the two whenever possible. So obviously our sources, they're Greek, they're Roman, they're praising, they're heaping all this praise on Alexander. Darius, not quite so lucky, let's say. It's also sometimes argued, usually in my eyes, in an attempt to diminish Alexander, that the Persian Empire was in steep decline and just anybody could have toppled it. And that is true to an extent. You know, the empire is certainly not at its height anymore, but it had also recently reestablished dominance over territories lost for decades, and the strength of its administration was still intact, and it was that administration that allowed Alexander to hold it together once he did take it over. So it is in decline, but it's not necessarily doomed to fail. So take that for what it's worth, I guess, you know? So yes, it wasn't declined, but it wasn't necessarily necrotic. It wasn't rotten. It wasn't doomed. It was also incredibly wealthy with an immense, immense population to draw upon, population that could be put to war. So in sum, what we're looking at, the Persian Empire invaded by Alexander wasn't the juggernaut it had been under Cyrus Darius I or many of the earlier greater rulers of the Persian Empire. But it wasn't incapable of defending itself, and it wasn't destined to be ripped apart or utterly conquered. The Persian army at this point likely had very few professional soldiers, relying more or less on levies drawn from their ter- territories. They had numerous infantry, but they were poorly armed and armored compared to the Greeks and Macedonians. The wealth of the Persian Empire did allow them to hire vast numbers of mercenaries, however, and these seem to have been primarily Greek hoplite heavy infantry, and it has often been alleged that there were more Greeks fighting against Alexander than with him. So even, you know, let's look into this a little bit. Mercenaries. Dubious loyalty, right? They're going to fight for whoever's paying them, likely to fold. Things are looking bad. But in pitched battle... They're not, you know, like, they have to fight. Fleeing is usually when people would end up dead. Alexander had already apparently slaughtered a group of Greek mercenaries to the man, so they have every incentive not to surrender to him. And the fact that, as we'll touch on later, they, the Greeks in the Battle of Issus om, like, almost outnumbered Alexander's army on itself, and we're supposed to believe the Greeks were this formidable fighting force, kind of says to me the Persians had a formidable army, you know, even if the ones composed of actual... Persian subjects wasn't ideal. The auxiliaries, the cavalry was excellent. And we got the hoplite infantry holding the middle. Like, solid, solid play to mold, I guess, is what I'm getting at. It wasn't this pathetic army. It's sometimes made out to be by ancient sources. After winning the Battle of the Dranicus in spring 334 BCE, Alexander spent the remainder of that year and 333 BCE overrunning Asia Minor, conquering as much territory, securing tributes from those he's conquered or liberated from Persian rule, stalling garrisons, typical, you know, conqueror stuff. In the 15 months since invading the Persian Empire, Alexander had conquered an area as large as Philip II's expansion of Macedonia into Thrace and the Balkans. Meanwhile, Darius III had spent this time amassing a large army from throughout his vast empire, especially the eastern satrapies, and attempting to rouse a revolt amongst the Greeks against Macedonia. By the summer of 333 BCE, he had amassed this large army near Babylon in the heartland of his empire. Ancient sources, as always, give us some pretty crazy numbers coming in at 400,000 to 600,000. Modern estimates are considerably smaller at around 150,000, 
including 30,000 great mercenaries. This was considerably larger than the 30 to 45,000 in total that Alexander could field. Once word reached Alexander and the Macedonians that Darius III had forged his great army and was on the move, they began their march out of Asia Minor to meet their enemy. He advanced out of the territory with a few famous encounters we're skipping over for now, before advancing into Cilicia and Tarsus, scattering token resistance from the satrap in the area. In Tarsus, Alexander apparently hot, sticky, and covered with dust from the road from hard marching on the road over the protests of the locals who warned Alexander that the river was fed by mountain ice and snow and was in fact very, very cold. He plunged in, armor and all, only to sink like a rock, quickly cramping up. He then had to be rescued, hauled from the river, already deeply in the drips of the chills, shivering and shaking uncontrollably. Apparently the river was going to be very clear and cold, but it was also apparently throw flowed through the city, so I'd imagine it was probably a little polluted with waste, at least a little polluted with waste, but maybe the Persians were smarter about that than other ancients, I don't know. That's just speculation on my part. Anyway, Alexander became quite sick from this. He almost died, sick for weeks, and many of the royal physicians refused to treat him because he was so ill that they were convinced he would die and they would be blamed for it. Finally, a physician by the name of Philip, an Arcananian doctor who had been with the cane since he was a child, prepared some medicine for the cane and suggested a purge. So, you know, that's pretty interesting advice for someone who's got fever and chills and is almost dying, but whatever. At the 11th hour, a letter arrived from Parmenio, perhaps warning Alexander not to trust Philip because Darius III had placed a thousand-talent bounty on his head, that being Alexander's head, or perhaps containing information that he'd received that Philip was outright planning to kill Alexander and collect this bounty, as well as the... Regardless, Alexander is said to have taken the medicine from Philip, handed him the letter, waited for him to read it, and then as the guy looks up with horror, like, oh my god, I would never do that, takes medicine, just downs it. One glass, big smile on his face, he's not worried about it at all. Clearly, he trusts the man. Now, at first, Alexander got much worse, and Philip continued to treat him, and he did eventually recover. Three days after taking the medicine and, you know, beginning the purge, having the poultices poured over him, all sorts of ancient medicine going on with the guy, he emerges from his tent before his troops, who apparently had been inconsolable, they're fucking freaking out. And he comes through, he's like, guys, we're good. We're good, we're solid, everything's set. During this time, when Alexander was sick, you know, dude's almost comatose, he can't really eat, can't really sleep, can't speak well, not great. But during this time, armies freaking out, Alexander's friend Harpolis, who we touched on in the Alexander the Financier episode, he flees for the first time, and though as we've already seen, wouldn't it be the last, Harpolis takes a portion of the treasury and just absconds. And that was because, you know, the army was very unsettled, they were unsure what would happen were the king to die airless, without a clear or any really, or any really secession plan, while they were deep in enemy territory. I guess our guy Parmenio would have been forced on a march of the 30-ish thousand, but we're not to know because Alexander's health did improve and he would live to fight another day, a day rapidly approaching because Darius III had apparently caught wind of Alexander's brush with death and so hastened his army, hoping to catch the invaded king before he could recover. Now, unclear if Darius III had heard of this or if he was simply impatient and puzzled 
by Alexander's pause in the city and forced to march because his army couldn't just like kind of sit and be fed. Anyway, we have to remember Darius III was a skilled commander and is depicted as weak and ineffectual by the ancient sources, mostly due to hatred of Persia and a desire to contrast him with Alexander. All told, this mysterious illness would keep Alexander stagnant for about a month, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, bringing the summer of 333 BCE to a close and ushering in fall. Alexander spent some additional time overrunning the rest of Cilicia, who was rich and fertile and teeming with crops to be harvested to feed his army, while Parmenio took the majority of the non-Macedonian troops to secure the passes into modern Syria, which would end up being where Alexander would face Darius. Darius III had apparently originally planned to meet Alexander in Sochai, which had wider plains that would favor the Persians' larger number in both infantry and cavalry, and which, you know, we have to take into account here. Persians very skilled in horsecraft, all that room to maneuver, fast, vastly over, vastly outnumbering the Macedonian cavalry. That would be very telling. However, Alexander's pause and subsequent actions in Cilicia had most likely unintentionally forced Darius III to march. Winter was approaching, the end of campaign season was approaching, and it would be difficult, if not impossible, for Darius to keep his massive army fed and equipped in these winter months. Thus, he marched out, despite some potentially apocryphal warnings by Charidemus, a mercenary leader, fled to Athens and then Persia following the fall of Thebes, who was supposed to have counseled Darius to let him lead a smaller portion of the army against the Macedonians, while the king and the Persians remained far away. So, his plan was denied, and his loyalty questioned, because, I mean, kind of suspicious to have a Greek mercenary commander volunteering to lead the Greek mercenaries to what the Persians must have considered a Greek army. A little suspect, to be honest with you, but... In response to these questions about his loyalty, dude shoots off his mouth and, you know, he's acting like he's still in the messy atmosphere of Athenian politics, but he's in the sort of noble, the sort of courtly, gentlemanly, well-mannered Persian court. And so, you know, when he's going about insulting the Persians' manhood, their bravery, their fighting spirit, he's killed for it. He's executed. A lot of this could have been later invention. You know, we contra- contrast the Philip Alexander story. He trusts his subordinates. He takes their advice. He has ultimate faith in them, even amongst rumors. And then we have Darius III executing, who, of course, in the Greek and Roman estimation, a man who gave him just great advice, basically. And so, of course, that means all of this could be a later invention. But whether it be through luck or skill, Darius III managed to bring his army around Alexander's, appearing suddenly about 12 and a half miles behind the Macedonians. Alexander, very skeptical about this at first, refuses to believe it, but despite his initial doubts, which were only mollified by sending a ship of trusted friends upriver to confirm the reports, Alexander was ready, he was raring to fight. He had previously established depot with some wounded veterans to recover and guard it, which were captured by Darius III once he appeared, you know, because Alexander is expecting to east to meet Darius. Darius appears behind him in the west. That's where the depot is. Veterans are there. Darius mutilates them. He has their stumps cauterized. So he, like, cuts off hands, feet, 
so that they can still walk if they support each other, but it's it's not great and they can never fight again, tauterizes them and then sends them crippled and broken back to the Macedonian army. At this point, it was clear a fight was unavoidable, and by all means it seems, to me at least, that Alexander wasn't the type to seek to avoid one anyway. He summons his senior officers to his tent and insists that despite everything, the Persians had, the Persians had played themselves. By approaching the Macedonians, they had pinned themselves in a narrow plain between mountain and sea, which would greatly diminish the force of their numbers, and the Macedonians would still be able to deploy their phalanx, their allies, all their units unimpeded. Alexander was by all counts genuinely confident, and he had every reason to be. For one thing, Jude was preternaturally confident. He had the self-assurance of a thousand lions. He'd also enjoyed an unbeaten string of success without serious setback. He had faced down a Persian force already in perhaps less favorable conditions and prevailed, and history said that a united and determined Greek force was more than a match for seemingly overwhelming Persian numbers. And given that, what hope did the Persians have against the combined Greek and Macedonian might? Despite the close presence of the enemy, Alexander was calm and collected, doing things at his own pace, ordering his men to eat, posting a watch, and ordering the rest to sleep for the night as best they could, which I have to imagine probably wasn't the best night's sleep they ever had. Alexander then took some of his generals in the night to observe the enemy's camp from an overpass where they could see, and then Alexander sacrificed the gods, both local and his own, in preparation for the battle to come. At dawn, the Macedonians began advancing on the Persians' position, with Alexander leading his forces out of the pass to a surrounding plain. And at first, neither army could see one another. The pass was very narrow, which forced Alexander and the Macedonians to keep in tight columns and not deploy. And the ground was uneven, and there were all these dips. So they deploy from this narrow marching formation. And as they get closer and closer, and the plain widens and widens, the troops sort of start to point. Persians have a light cavalry force screening and protecting the main forces as they are arrayed. And as such, Alexander first deploys his hypacifists and phalanx, trusting them to deal with the light cavalry should they attack. Adrian Doldsworthy has a wonderful depiction of this, and I'm just going to quote him here because I think he paints a picture better than I could. Once there was sufficient space, each individual regiment of hypacipists and pike phalanx formed up 32 ranks deep. At full strength, this would give a regiment, or tatsis, a frontage of 48 men. Contrary to most modern accounts, the entire phalanx was not in a single block, and the maneuvers that followed only made sense if the units were distinct, each with room on either side to change into shallower and wider formations. As the plane widened, more and more regiments were able to come up alongside. There were frequent halts to dress formation and keep the proper distances as well as to judge the better the space available. Alexander and his officers closely supervised the march. Undulations in the ground meant that for much of the time they remained invisible to the waiting enemy. At some point the formations halved their depth to 16 ranks and then finally to the standard 8 ranks, a move that once again required more than adequate empty space between each unit before the drill was performed. The march was one of distinct blocks, with plenty of space between them marching, halting, reforming, and marching again, and was a testament to much practice and skill on the part of soldiers and officers. Few armies in the ancient world could have managed such an ordered advance anywhere near as well as Alexander's men. As they pushed forward, the Persian screening force withdrew to join the rest of Darius's army. 
unquote. Due to the skillful, precise march, Alexander and the Macedonians' approach took hours to reach the Persians, and in fact, it was late in the day by the time the two armies were finally together. And it's easy to imagine that the Persians, who were kind of a toppled-together army, as we touched on, not very professional, seeing this uncanny display of discipline, once again, pretty quiet, just slowly appearing, reappearing in a different formation, getting closer and closer, straight line, dust getting kicked up, must have been utterly unnerving to the Persians, who remained pretty static. And now, friends, it is time to talk first how the battlefield was laid out from a bird's eye view, as best we can create thousands of years later, and then about how the two armies were arranged. So, with modern conversion, the field was listed in ancient sources at around one and three quarter miles across. So, arranged from, if we're looking at a picture from left to right, it's about one and three fourth miles across. But today, that number is closer to almost three miles. So, perhaps the ancients got the number wrong, more likely the terrain, which we're pretty sure we have the location. The shoreline probably has receded, which is weird, but anyway. Let's go with the one and three-fourth wide plain on the left, or west, I guess we could say, maybe southwest. On the left side of maps, I'll post of the battle, we have the Mediterranean Sea. And this would correspond with the Persian right and the Macedonian left. On the Persian left, Macedonian right, we have this sort of mountainous, uneven terrain cropping up some hills, hemming things in. And between the armies, we have another river, not the Granitus this time, the modern Pius River. Apparently, Darius counted on the river as well as some well-placed defensive fortification by way of pikes positioned by the Persians to dissuade a full-scale charge by the Macedonians. And so he arranged his forces, some have argued at the last minute, Mirroring some of the moves Alexander made, others have argued that it was long before Alexander, just due to the sheer size of the army, would have taken a lot longer to deploy if it was three times the size of Alexander's. They weren't as organized or coordinated as the Macedonians by a long shot, so that would have added time. And then also, once they started to deploy, they would be sort of hemmed in because the battlefield was so narrow. So to me, it does make sense that there were few, if any, modifications once they got into place. But to the right, by the sea, Darius places the bulk of his cavalry, a massive horde that all told was maybe 30,000 strong. Though, as always, this could be embellishment. The Greek hoplite heavy infantry mercenaries form the center of the line, flanked on each side with Persian Tardassi infantry. Tardaki? It's either Tardaki, Tardashi, I've heard it both ways. At Stendhal's site reference with archers in support on a reign of raised ground behind the infantry, which probably numbered around 60,000 combined. That's like the front row of the army. Darius is dripped out in the center. He has a beautiful, gleaming, glamorous chariot and an elite guard of 3,000 cavalry, his household guard. Light infantry and skirmishers, along with some more cavalry composed of the Persian left, both the left wing and the right were ordered to be the more aggressive. Opening attack, the left was to go and try to flank the Macedonians and get behind them, which would have really, you know, done wonders for the Persians had it worked. But the center where Darius was, where the Greeks were, where the infantry were, were to remain on the defensive. 
After all, Darius III simply had to survive this battle and inflict damage on the Macedonians, who could realistically be thwarted with anything less than a major victory in this battle. Morale is a very powerful thing, and the Persians could prove to the Macedonians that they wouldn't roll over easily, and that the defeat, their conquest, far from inevitable, things could very easily snowball and lead to the Macedonians slinking back to Pella. Alexander, for his part, arranged his army with Parmenio on the left, facing the vast Persian cavalry by the sea. With Parmenio went the allied and mercenary cavalry, which at first didn't include the Thessalian cavalry, but either once Alexander saw that the ground there was better for the mass cavalry battle, or perhaps just seeing how the massive the Persian force was on that flank, the Thessalians were sent to join Parmenio, and they were supported by archers and Thracian infantry. Parmenio would be vastly outnumbered. In the center, the phalanx was arrayed in its traditional format, while on the right, the elite hypacipus once again held this place of honor. More archers and light infantry were also on the right, and they sort of, once the Persians start trying to get a little tricky, sneak behind the army, the archers, light infantry, they go up into the mountains, try to drive back the Persians, neutralizing the threat of being outflanked. With his troops ranged, Alexander, along with some more of the Hypacipus and the companion cavalry, took their place at the center and continued the advance. Persians had apparently more or less waited for the Macedonians to approach, seeing the oncoming cloud of dust, watching their enemy disappear and reappear through the uneven ground. The narrowness of the plain allowed the Macedonians to nearly fill it, diminishing the psychological effects of the Persians' numerical superiority. While the slow, deliberate march of the organized and cohesive Macedonian army must have been eerie to the Persians. Arian tells us that once Alexander saw the Persians in all their vast numbers halted, staying put in defensive formations and with fortifications in place, that he immediately knew that Darius was in spirit a man beaten. And the take on this is basically Darius was similar to a bad NFL coach. He wasn't playing to win, he was playing not to lose, playing not to get embarrassed. Alexander saw this and knew instantly that all he had to do was break the man and the horde would crumble with him. After hours of marching and preparing, perhaps the Persians hoped that the display of the vastness of their army would convince the Macedonians to hold, but if this was the case, as it might have been at the Granicus, they underestimated Alexander, who was determined to attack, and so he rode up and down his line that stole his men to glory, telling the Greeks, we're here for vengeance, just win, telling the Macedonians, who's got it better than us? Nobody. Just win. He goes to the Illyrians, the other allies. He's like, hey, loot, glory, wealth on the other side of this battle. Just win. And so he's riding. He's calling out the commanders by name. He's getting everybody fired up. And we're not quite at Theodon levels here, right? That would probably come on at Gaudamela. But he gave one hell of a pep talk, one hell of a pregame speech to the point where the soldiers were begging him to launch the attack. Yet he persisted in his slowish, orderly procession, confident that his deployment would prevent the Persian left from flanking him, and he only ordered the attack once his lines were within the range of Persian bows. Once his army had engaged the enemy charging at the front line, mitigating the risk of the Persian bow's effectiveness, a shrill trumpet blast sounds and Alexander and the companions slam into and through the Persian center, where those Tardachi are, they go kind of around the hoplite infantry, the Persian infantry break, 
and Alexander and the companions make a mad dash towards Darius, sweeping aside resistance they meet. This force was probably the companion cavalry and some or most of the Hypacipus, making a headlong charge designed to unnerve the Tardasses the and anyone else they came into contact with, as well as the archers supporting them, treating the risk of charging with the increased nerves diminishing the archers' effectiveness. The phalanx, meanwhile, engaged with the hoplite infantry of Greek mercenaries employed by the Persians. They were charging, they were coming over uneven ground, they were crossing a river, and so their formation became kind of ragged, more ragged than ideal, certainly, and they were in the midst of a tough fight. The terrain also diminished the effectiveness of the sarissa in comparison to the hoplite spear, and we're told that 120 of these pikemen died. Meanwhile, the Persian right came crashing into the Thessalian and allied cavalry under Parmenio, leading to a swirling cavalry battle each side, you know, doing that wedge, retreat, wedge, retreat, slamming into one another again and again. But Parmenio was doing very well despite being outnumbered. But his hands were full, and the battle on the flank was a back and forth affair for a while. Alexander was relying on his old general to hold just long enough for the charge to break Darius III. Without a general as skilled and trustworthy, not to mention as experienced as Parmenio, with as skilled as troops as the Thessalian cavalry, Alexander's strategy could have failed. He could have been encircled by the massive Persian cavalry if his troops weren't as skilled, weren't as brave, and as well led. They could have fled the field and allowed the Macedonian army to be destroyed. But, you know, just as likely, maybe, if Alexander, he could have been a pro scout, recognized he didn't have the support staff to pull this off, and employed a different strategy. Do not know. Anyway, as the Persian center begins to break up and gaps open, Alexander continues his headlong charge towards Darius III, wheeling through the infantry to flank the great king, making it to the regiment of cavalry defending him. Alexander and his men fight fiercely against their enemy, with Alexander perhaps sustaining a wound on his thigh from Darius's brother. And this is the confrontation with Macedonians charging into the Persian cavalry that is depicted in the famous Pompeii mosaic. The one that shows Darius terror-stricken, fleeing from a curiously brown-haired Alexander the Great. Darius, in real life, seeing the approaching Macedonians, leaps from his horse, or leaps from his chariot, onto a horse, abandoning the ornate chariot, his army, his treasure, his family, and running from the field of battle. Now this is certainly a tough look for our guy, he did escape with his life and would harness an even larger army to bring to bear against Alexander. So, this is far from a conclusive bro to his kingship, his hold over his satraps, his subjects, and his nobles. But, it's not ideal. It's not what he wanted. The fighting lasted a very short time in a great courses lecture I listened to in preparing for this to try to get some of the pronunciations down. The guy says 10 minutes. That seems like an exaggeration. But certainly... The Persian army broke up very swiftly upon contact with the enemy. The massive reserves that Darius had fled the field with the king, and seeing that the army was fled and the king fled, the Persian cavalry also retreats, trampling many of those infantry soldiers fleeing the field as well. And with the Macedonians in pursuit, it became something of a slaughter. The Greek hoplites were told, fought until it was clear they were, um, the battle was lost, and then made a fighting withdrawal. All in all, bad day for the Persians. 
How bad we can't quite say. Ancient sources, again, ludicrous estimates of 100,000 dead Persians, 10,000 of them cavalry, with Ptolemy saying that he rode over a ravine filled with Persian corpses. Modern estimates would put those at around 20,000, with some as high as 40,000, but we'll never really know. The Romans would famously lose tens of thousands at Cannae, against a force who lost less than a fifth as many. So, such staggering losses and differences in losses was certainly within the realm of possibility from ancient battles. Estimates for the Macedonians' loss are that they suffered around 5,000 total casualties, with 500 killed and 4,500-ish wounded. Once again, like we've gotten stories of in the Battle of the Granicus, we get stories of Alexander going to the wounded and prescribing treatment for them, because our dude just loved medicine, you know what I mean? He was a real dork for it. Plus, it was just good media, it was good PR to be going amongst the wounded, making a personal touch with each of them, getting connection, and then, you know, especially if he was sure of his medical abilities, prescribing them life-saving whatever, that's probably going to help. And then once they recovered, they'd surely fight with all the more fervor for their friend, the king. Now, we'll touch a bit more on what the aftermath of this battle meant for the Persians later on in the Battle of Gaudamilla episode. But like I touched on, while it was a setback for the Persians, it's only in hindsight that it becomes obvious that, that it was a fatal one. At the time, it likely appeared only a minor one. After all, once again, the Persians really only had to defeat the Macedonians once, whereas the Macedonians needed to continually win to keep winning. As we touched on, I believe in the Alexander the Financier and definitely in the Alexander the Lover episode, following the Battle of Issus, we did a couple of fascinating stories involving Alexander. A number of leading Persian noble women were left at camp as the army collapsed, including the royal family. The queen mother, Sissy Gambus, Stateria, wife of Darius III and the most beautiful woman in the Persian Empire, and her children with Darius III. Alexander was said to have entered the tent of Darius, observed the luxuries, the feasts, were the food, the golden bath, the equipped. So this is what it means to be a king. He would also find the royal family, and Sissidambus, the queen mother, apparently mistook the more handsome and taller Hephaestion for Alexander. And when she realized her mistake, she was quite fearful, she was mortified. But Alexander was said to have consoled her, told her that it was all right, that Hephaestion was just another Alexander. High praise for his best friend and very possible lover. We're also told that Alexander treated the family of Darius very nobly. He gave them and like the treatment befitting their station, educating the children, that he did not take advantage of Sateria, that he protected her from being assaulted by his men and basically treated her as a king. There are other stories that she died in childbirth sometime later. Unclear if that is true unclear the circumstances surrounding that were it true but all told our ancient source pretty convinced dude treated the captured family of his foe with the utmost respect we're also told that alexander and the macedonians captured three thousand talents worth of gold and silver at the persian camp and then another 2600 at the baggage train at damascus left by Darius, plus thousands of pounds of gold and silver trinkets such as cups, jewelry, things like that. And this bounty was shared with the army. Now this battle, you know, it was over very quickly. Once it began, Alexander didn't have any control over what happened. It's not necessarily the most tactically or strategically brilliant of Alexander's career. 
think that several of the ones we touched on last week, certainly the sieges we'll be discussing next week in the Battle of the Hydaspes are much more impressive from a tactic standpoint. But Alexander displayed a keen understanding of psychological warfare here, allowing the unnerving discipline of his army to wear on the enemy, trusting in his subordinates' troops to hold against the vast forces of the Persians while he led a headlong dash against his foe. He also seems to have understood the positioning of the army and how to break it, and to have keenly understood Darius III before even meeting him in battle just by the way his enemy arranged his army. Plus, there's the deploying and redeploying as he marched, changing his formation to best take advantage of the terrain and Darius's formation, reacting to his foe, and that uncanny ability to seemingly take a snapshot of the enemy in its formation and know exactly what to do and how to do it. So yes, not the most impressive battle of his career, but an impressive one. And as I've touched on already, because we know what Alexander did, how quickly he did it, and just how staggeringly successful he was, it's very easy to think of him and his success as inevitable. Which sort of discredits the fact that it was his actions that led him to victory again and again, and that were he perhaps even marginally less skilled, he could have been routed and crushed. Also, let's not forget our dude was only 23 years old when he's doing this. Anyway, following the battle and securing of the baggage train at Damascus and the camp of Darius, Alexander and the Macedonians had no want for money. Darius III retreated east of the Euphrates, deeper into his empire, and the Macedonian war machine continued largely unopposed along the south in the Levant, with most of these cities, you know, the Phoenicians, folding to him without a struggle, which helped in the win the sea war from land bit. But one of these cities would stand against him and be changed forever for it. The island city of Tyre. But that, my fine feathered friends, is a story for another time because that is all we have time for today. So be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those five-star ratings, those lovely, lovely five-star reviews, and hop on Instagram and follow High Tips Podcast. Get in my ear about what I'm doing wrong, what I'm doing right, see some memes, see some posts, see what I'm reading, all manner of good stuff there. So until next time, remember, pump up the jam, pump it up while your feet are stomping. Peace.